Hey, this is Rich Wilkerson. I'm the pastor of VU Church in Miami, Florida, and this is our podcast. Thank you so much for checking it out today. I hope it encourages you and inspires you. Here's today's message. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's conversation. My name is Adrian Molina. I hope this finds you well. Take a moment and share this content. Get it out with some friends. Today's conversation is epic. I had the chance to sit down with Marty Solomon. Marty Solomon is a modern day theologian and really a subject matter expert when it comes to the biblical text. He is the president and director of discipleship over at Impact Campus Ministries, but also the founder of the Bema podcast, which has really impacted thousands for so many years. Uh, I'm excited for this conversation. I know you're going to enjoy it. Come on, let's go to the combo. Marty, how are you today? I am doing excellent. It's been a good what is it? I, I lose track of the days of the week this day. Is, uh, Wednesday today. <laughs> oh my goodness. It's a great Wednesday. For a Wednesday, not bad. Right. Exactly. Well, thank you again for taking the time to be here. Uh, I know that our community is going to be blessed by this conversation. And as you and I were just chatting about, our church presently is in a collection of talks entitled Endure. We are studying the book of First Peter. And every day we've got scripture that we're diving into. On Saturdays, we've got some reflection exercises. Sundays for eight weeks, we're really speaking out of this text. Uh, but today, I wanted to have a conversation with you as a subject matter expert in the text. Uh, I wanted to have a conversation around 1 Peter and really just help equip us on the journey of diving into this book. How does that sound? Sounds great. I love talking Bible. Let's do it. Great. Let's do it. So uh, before we actually dive into the actual text, I think it's important to talk about the person behind the text. Uh, I listened to your episode where you summarized 1 Peter on your podcast, which was fantastic. And you put a lot of emphasis on who Peter was as a man on his role uh, in the early church. I'm wondering, can you, can you help us better understand the person in order for us to better understand the text? Yeah, uh, and Peter's one of those deep character studies when you, he's a, he has this unbelievably moving, he gets a bad rap, Peter does. Like if I just start with like just who he is, uh, Peter's like kind of known as like this dumb loud mouth that talks without thinking. And I don't, I don't really see that much at all when I study the, the narrative that I'm looking at in the Gospels, I think Peter's, um, he is audacious. He's quick to, um, to want to, he's going to be the first one off the boat. And that's his role. Like he's been kind of selected as the oldest, the eldest, the leader of the Habara, which is the Hebrew word for the group of disciples. It's his role to be the first off the boat, but he seems to revel in that. But he, he knows his text. Like he's deeply, deeply committed to his text, educated, the things that we often think are foolish that he's saying that oh, stupid Peter, like that's actually, that's actually usually deeply rooted in a knowledge of the text, which the irony of us calling him silly or just kind of shows our own ignorance. Like he knows the text so much better than usually all of us in the room when we combine our own knowledge. It, He's really uh, an impressive, but he goes on this unbelievable, I think because of who he is and his role and because he does know so much, um, Peter has this hard time getting his head around this new king and this new kingdom, this gospel that Jesus keeps trying to. And so he does have some moments of failure, not the ignorant, um, dumb Peter moments, but he has these other moments of like planting his flag in the wrong place and maybe using some of the wrong methods. We obviously know as the story of, I mean, his denial, 
this is unbelievably moving. I won't get into that now, but unbelievably moving end of Jesus's ministry, death and resurrection, reinstatement on the beach, just a phenomenal. But, but then, I mean, the part of that story is he allows himself to be reinstated by Jesus. Like he allows himself to receive the forgiveness, which is what's going to set him up to be the leader, which was one of your other questions. Like Peter plays this role of um, like the leader and from different perspectives, like obviously you have the Catholic perspective and Protestants push against that so hard. I feel like sometimes we overcorrect because Peter really does have, he is in the leader seat of the, of the early churches being Jesus's right hand man and right hand apostle. And so in this triumvirate, you have Peter, James, and John who lead the church, James in the church in Jerusalem and John in the, he's the pastor to Asia and Peter kind of really overseeing this movement as a whole. And his entire ministry seems to be deeply rooted in his own personal journey. Um, it makes me think of even guys like Moses, like he has his failures and yet he's used those failures to let Jesus Jesus has redeemed those failures in his leadership mm. so that he can speak. When he speaks in First Peter about suffering or endurance or perseverance, it's coming from a different kind of place, but these are things that he's experienced firsthand and knows, knows really well. And that's what I love about reading, reading letters like First and Second Peter. Yeah, that's excellent. That gives us context on who he is. And I think it helps us really resonate with the man and understand the transition that took place in his life, the radical shift in not, not just his relationship with Christ, his Lord and Savior, but really the application of his leadership, the application of his faith walk. And I think oftentimes, myself included, we, we forget and we neglect the reality that Peter was the authority. Like you said, that he was the guy that was leading the movement in the early days of the church. So as we read his words and we, we put ourselves in that context, I think we're able to receive his teaching uh, with a, a greater appreciation because we understand the, the authority that is attached to it. So thank you for that. That's excellent. Um, something else you talk about pretty extensively in, in your ministry and all of your podcasts is that really we have to understand the audience of the day. Uh, I think one of the things you say is that the Bible was not written by us, but it was written for us. And in order to really digest what's taking place, we have to understand who it was being addressed to in the moment. So as our church right now for these eight weeks, as we are studying First Peter, what should we know about the audience in order to better digest the text for ourselves right now? Yeah, and there's always some debate about the exact details, historically speaking. But it seems like when Peter writes, one of the things that he, he, he addresses his letters to the believers in a place like Cappadocia amongst many others. Well, Cappadocia is a place I love to take students when we go to Turkey. It is off the beaten path. It is out in the backwater of, of Turkey and, and modern-day uh, Asia Minor, not modern-day, uh, biblical-day Asia Minor. It is a place where you go to be off the grid. It's where the persecuted went if they were. Um, I remember when I went there for the very first time and, and my teacher, I mean, we had, we had studied the persecuted church and people that had given their life and stayed and worshiped and fellowshiped in places like Ephesus. And, and then you get to Cappadocia and, and he had been asking us all the, the entire trip, how do you respond? How do you respond mm -hmm. to 
this context. And he said, why did none of you say run, mm. flee? And we were all like, I mean, because that's the coward's way out. And he's right. all, but that's like one of the few things that Jesus told us to do. Wow. When wow. they come, Jesus said, flee to the, and he, he, he really invested in us realizing this group of people that Peter seems to be writing to, these are not cowards and these mm. are not people. These are people that did what Jesus said and ended up preserving a faith that we appreciate and, and oftentimes even take for granted. But that's the audience that you're really being able to, when you realize that Peter is writing, he's not writing to nominal believers who are just, these are people that are, are fighting for their literal survival yeah. and have given up everything, whatever houses, careers, wealth, status, everything that mattered in the Roman world, they've given it up and they've gone to go live in caves and holes in the ground, as Hebrews says. Um, it's, it's an unbelievable uh, setting for an audience of his letters. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I want to dive in in a second to part of what you're alluding to, the persecution that they were facing uh, and really correlating that to present-day suffering. But before we do that, what, what parallels do you think exist between the audience of the day and the audience today? That's a really good question and one that we have to be just really careful to answer really humbly um, because there's, there's definitely some, some parallels. And when we have a really, when we're speaking to a really diverse audience, without a fact, there will be people that know things about suffering and persecution and oppression. And, and I've grown up in a world that is grappling more and more and more with um, the, the, the privilege that we had all around us, the disconnection from diversity. I grew up in rural Pacific Northwest and we just didn't have some of the things that we're now having to learn about and, and get better mm -hmm. with. So I've become more aware of, I got to quit assuming that my experience is the only one that I'm talking about. Cause there are people that definitely know something about oppression and persecution and real suffering. There's another group of us, that needs to be real careful. We don't draw too many parallels. Mm. Um, there is a particular Christian evangelical experience that likes to feel like we're persecuted. And one of the things I said on a recent episode of our podcast was, um, I, I think we often mistake the loss of privilege for persecution. Wow. Like I think, I think there's a whole nother group of us that we had a certain default, like a certain level of comfort, a certain, way about doing life as a Christian in America. And, and, and some of those things start to go away and some of them frankly should go away and we start to cry persecution. So there's something that we have to be real careful, like just humble mm -hmm. about. Now, having said that, <laughs> we are talking about 2020, right. like one of the craziest, most unbelievable years that I right. can ever remember in my life, like the amount of stuff that we're watching and dealing. So uh, suffering, I mean, of any year that we could relate to Peter, this is, this has got to be a year that that first Peter of any of years could just really teach us some things and ring true for sure. So sure. I, I'm with you on that. Sure. Yeah. And that, that's great language. The, the loss of privilege is not equivalent to persecution. And I think what you're encouraging everyone is be honest with yourself and approach that conversation internally from a posture of humility in order to really understand uh, how you can address your present day suffering, which is 
leading to the next question. So you, you hit it. Um, although presently our Western society, especially the American church and, and our culture here in 2020, we're not facing the same level of persecution. This year, 2020, has been a year where enduring is at top of mind. And I think that's really what felt uh, what led us to feeling like we want to do a collection around First Peter, like we want to do a collection around this concept of enduring, because people are facing different levels of suffering in their day-to-day lives. So this concept of suffering is woven in and out through the entirety of First Peter. Uh, my question for you is, what do you think that living out endurance looks like in the midst of suffering in today's world? Um, the, so the word that I just routinely comes to mind when I have this conversation is faithfulness. And I'm not sure if the word has enough, if it's a poignant enough word for me to use, but I haven't figured out a better option yet. One of the things that we learned from the Jewish tradition, which also has a deeply intimate uh, connection with suffering and persecution and all kinds of things like that, is the Jewish faith and Jewish, Jewish tradition that that our Christian experience is built on and comes out of, it has this this deep-seated commitment to faithfulness. Mm. And faithfulness is connected to hope. And the beauty of the Jesus conversation is I think all of this is deeply rooted and exacerbated with the resurrection. I mean, to believe that that death and darkness and, and, and cancer and greed and injustice, like those things don't get the last word but there's something bigger. There's something more true. There's a truer true and, and, a, and a real that is more real. Mm. It's more honest. It's more, that life is more real than death, which mm. that's, a, that's a scandalous thing. To put your, but that is what, what folks like the Jewish faith tradition, that's what they've shown us. That's how they've endured through things like Holocaust and numerous persecutions because they believed that there was something bigger than just their individual experience. They had been through Exodus. They had mm. been through captivities. They had been through, they know what it is to persevere and to keep showing up because they believe there's something that's more true than just their immediate circumstances. And that's not to trivialize the immediate circumstances. The things that we're going to wrestle with, the things we are dealing with, um, with mental health and emotional health, physical health, um, all the things that we're wrestling with in 2020, despair and relational disconnection. And these are very real things. Mm. And yet endurance says these are very real and they, they are serious, but we are, we're planting our feet in the fact that they find their proper place in a much larger, much grander narrative that God is telling that it goes way, it goes way back. It will go way beyond, and and there are things that transcend. It doesn't, and that's a hard. It's a hard tightrope to honor and appropriately address the realness of the struggle, but also go. But I also believe in something that that is more real, more true, and so I'm going to keep showing up. When I like, there's this thing we do in the Christian world where if it's not real, I quit doing it. Like we do devotions right. and we talk about like, well, I'm just not feeling. And so it must be fake. Like our only two options are real or fake. Right. There's also an option where you go, 
no, I'm going to show up and do this because I believe in the efficacy mm -hmm. of making this, per, pursuing God in this way. And I may not be feeling it, but I believe the truth is bigger than my feelings. In the same way that what we're talking about, I believe that there's something that's bigger than my circumstances. As true as my circumstances are, I don't have to let them define what is most true about who God is and what I believe God is doing in the world, even if I can't see it at all. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's incredibly powerful to understand that despite present day suffering, although it is real and although it, it is having an impact on how we are walking out our day-to-day -day lives, it's all part of something that is much larger than ourselves. And that's why in Peter, in First Peter, Peter talks about this living hope that we are attached to and that we have arrived at the end result of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And I, I think he's able to teach these bi biblical principles throughout that uh, letter because he's attaching it all back to this foundational truth that we have a living hope to cling on to. So that's really beautiful. Um, I want to transition now to, instead of speaking on some of the topical stuff, speaking on some of the biblical principles and teachings that we find within the text. So uh, Peter, very early on in 1 Peter, he talks about how Jesus is the cornerstone and that we are living stones. And as a as a, a new church, we're five years old. A lot of people that are on the journey with VU are first-generation Christians. Uh, they are at the infancy of their relationship with Jesus. They're learning uh, who the person of Jesus is, learning what it means to walk out a relationship with him. So that kind of language is sometimes foreign. Sometimes uh, Sundays might be the first time that they've ever heard anything regarding to Jesus being the cornerstone and us being living stone. So can you help translate that? For us a little bit. Help us uh, digest that a little bit more. What is, what is Peter trying to put emphasis on when he calls Christ the cornerstone and that when he calls us living stones? Absolutely. And there's a couple of wrinkles in that teaching with, with Peter that just brings so much depth to it. So one of the most dominant ideas in our New Testament is this concept of God is, is building and has opened up a new temple, especially after the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed in AD 70. One of the main tenets of this early church is, well, we have become this new place where God dwells, this, this new place where the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And so you see Paul doing a ton of stuff with that. You even see some, some hidden references all throughout, um, sometimes even the Gospels with the book of Acts. But here with Peter, Peter talks about a spiritual house. Well, well a, a, a good Jew to a good Jewish audience never uses the word temple. The word was to... Um, holy, it was almost like the name of God you never used, so you used other references. So Peter talks about building, God is building a spiritual oikos, mm -hmm. a spiritual house. And this house, it, this, a spiritual house is a temple. So God is building a temple, and the cornerstone, and Jesus is called all three things in your scriptures. It, it's, he's called the cornerstone, he's called the head of the corner, and he's called the capstone, all in different passages. He is the cornerstone which is the piece that everything, the cornerstone is what everything's going to be built off of. It is what the, um, the uh, you're going to lay the cornerstone first. It provides the strength and the accuracy of where all the, 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 the walls are going to be laid. So Jesus is that cornerstone, but then it references us as, as living stones. Right. So we, we, there's this idea that we are like, I'm, 
I'm a, I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit and you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. But that's really not accurate to the New Testament. We, plural, are temples of the, we are all living stones being built into one mm. house, one singular oikos, but we are all living stones. But then Peter does something that Paul doesn't. Peter uses the word, when he talks about stones, masava, masavot. Uh, uh, he uses a Septuagint equivalent, I should say it that way, and in the Greek, which is the word that gets used for standing stones or stones of witness, wow. which are the stones that you, you erect, like when they crossed the River Jordan, they took 12 stones and they stood them up so that when their children walked by, these are stones of testimony. Like when you walk by them, your kids, are they don't have words on them. That's a Stella. These are not Stellas. These are stones of witness. And they, they purposely don't have words because when you walk by with your kids, your, your kids are supposed to say, dad, what is that? And you get to tell the, sto- the, the testimony. You get to tell the story of the stone. So not, not only is Peter saying we're all living stones and using this beautiful metaphor to talk about how we're being built into a house and we are the new temple of God, but he's also saying the stones that God is using are standing stones. They're stones of witness. And your life, every stone has a story. Wow. Every stone in this temple has a story that tells the larger story of God. It's just unbelievable deep. Like it has all these layers that keep interacting with just pure Jewish fashion. That's beautiful teaching by Peter. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I, it gives us context, I think, to not just how we're, we are to perceive Christ as a cornerstone, but how Christ perceives us and how his intention for us is to help build, like you said, collectively this singular temple here on earth. So it's really beautiful. Um, one of the things that Peter talks about too is he references from Deuteronomy early on in First Peter. He says that uh, you shall be holy as I am holy, meaning we should be holy because God is holy. Uh, I think that word in today's society is a word that doesn't have a lot of appeal to it. It's not very attractive. It's not very well-received. It's almost got a mystic connotation attached to it. In some circles, a negative connotation attached to it. Um, But I think really that just has to do with our lack of understanding of the word, uh, what the application of the word looks like. So I'm wondering, can you help translate that for us? Can you help uh, digest what it is that Peter's referring to here when he says, number one, God is holy, but then also you as a body of believers, you are called to be holy as well. Absolutely. Yeah. We get the word kind of gunked up because we, we see it through our Greek platonic lens of abstract perfection, image, all kinds of other images that kind of get in the way. But the word holy, uh, especially, I mean, Peter's quoting Leviticus, so it's going to come from a Hebrew context. The word is kadosh. Mm. And the word literally just means uh, consecrated or set apart, which is another way of just saying different. Like the word really just means different. Now, it's, it's not, just, not just different, but I mean different in a substantive way. Mm. Um, I, I wear, so as a Jew, I wear my zizio. I have these tassels on. And and when you look at the, you, you won't be able to see it on the screen, I'm sure. But when you look at these tassels, one of the threads that I have, it's a white tassel. And yet one of the threads that I have is blue. And this blue thread stands out and is totally different. Well, blue is the color of priesthood. A priest is called to be holy, different than, uh, so you have a whole tassel of white threads and one blue thread. 
God is holy. You are to be holy as God is holy. If all the gods of the world are like these white strings, well, God is like this blue string. He is different. He's set apart, which ends up being the call of first Peter because Peter's asking them to, in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their persecution, live such good lives, Peter is going to say, that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, they, you stand out. Even live such good lives among the pagans, stand out in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your persecution. And to connect that to our idea of living stones, I think they would, in the context of Peter's teaching, I think they're going to go back to this passage in Isaiah. Remember, remember Abraham, your father, and Sarah, your mother. Remember the quarry from which they were hewn. Mm. Uh, there's that same image of stones and remember the faith that you're a part of. Remember Abraham and Sarah. What were they? They were holy. They were mm. different. They were set apart. And the things that set them apart were their love, their hospitality, their radical acceptance of people that they didn't even know. This is what Peter's saying. This isn't just about survival. This isn't about sticking up for your you're you know, fighting for your rights or somehow kicking against the empire. This is about loving all people in all circumstances. This is the testimony you have. This is how God lives in you as a spiritual house. That's great. If I can ask a follow-up to that, I think once we have an understanding that holy means to be set apart, and, and you just gave great applications using Abraham and Sarah, great applications of what that can look like in our daily lives, um, how would you encourage a mature believer to assess whether they have been living in this manner or not? I know that that's sort of a convoluted question, but I'm just curious on what your feedback would be. Well, not convoluted at all, because Paul seems really, um, he, he really wants to actually answer that question. In Galatians, he talks about like walking by the flesh or by the spirit, and he actually gives us that exact test question. How do I know? How do I know in Galatians 5? How do I know? And he says, well, the fruits of the flesh are obvious. So if you're worried about, am I walking in the spirit? Am I walking in the flesh? Because it gets tricky when you're suffering, when you're in the midst of crazy times. Like you start to ask all these questions, like, am I, am I not doing something right? Is God not for me? Shouldn't God be delivering me? We have all these questions. And so it gets tricky. So Paul wants us to be able to know he says, well, the fruits of the flesh are, are obvious, like debauchery and division and fits of rage and, and, and malice and anger. And, and if those are the things that are coming out of your life, if those are the things that, that uh, if that's the fruit that's being born in your life, well, you know, you know that you're somehow out of sync. It's not some huge condemnation. It's just, you know that the path you're walking is not the path that's in sync with the spirit. Now, if what comes out of your life is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. I mean, and this is, this is a great year to be able to test those things, because there's a lot of things that are not normal, and there are a lot of things that are causing us to go, am I, but if I'm, if I'm seeing the Spirit produce, I know that I'm walking the path, because that's the fruit that's being born out of my experience. And I mean, not only in the midst of everything else in 2020, it's an election year. So okay. nothing hits us against each other and causes that idolatry to rise up in us like being in this kind of a year. And so I really feel like you'll know, like this is 2020 is a, in a lot of ways, a test that enables us to really see um, I, I just 
did my chemicals in my hot tub yesterday. I mean, like that test strip, I kept thinking like, man, this is the year that really tells us what our faith looks like. My, am I, am I, am I in the right color or am I not? And I'll know this year. I'll know. Yeah, no, that's great. It's a great illustration. And it's true. I mean, we often say that uh, pressure is what will squeeze what's inside of you out of you. And I think this year has brought uh, reoccurring aspects of pressure, pressure that is, is common, things that we're used to that we kind of face every single year, but then brand new forms of pressure uh, that we, for the most part, have been unexposed to. And all of that pulls out what's inside of us. So I think what you're saying is so practical. You look at the fruit and based upon the fruit, you could tell where it is that you're rooted. Um, in chapter four, Peter, he talks about uh, the gifts of the body slightly. And he, he says that all of us were uniquely gifted and we should use these gifts in order to glorify God, but then also be in service to others. And again, something like that in 2020, I think is so countercultural. Um, it, it, it's completely against, I think, what our natural default is. I'm speaking on behalf of my generation. It, it is against the default of my generation. We use what we have in order for self-advancement, for self-fulfillment. So this idea of taking the giftings that I have and putting them to use for the glorification of God, but then also the service to others is a tension that I think we have to manage and that attention that we have to deal with. So I'm curious to know from your perspective, being a, a student of the text and being uh, really just a, a long mature follower of Christ, what would your approach be towards persuading someone to use the gifts that they have in order to one, glorify God, but then also to serve others? Yeah. Um, it, and the persuade is a good word. Um, I feel like we have this thing in us that wants, like we're made to, to, to make an impact. We're made to make a difference. Not in and of ourselves. It's a partnership. Like we're made to partner with God. But all of us are made to partner with God. That's where we find our fulfillment. And we all want, especially this generation you're referring to and those behind us, they want their life to matter. They want to find significance. And that can be very selfish, but I mean, often it's not. And even in the selfish, just behind that selfish veneer, if you can pull it back a little bit, is is something that is actually rooted in its proper place. Mm. Like there's a, we, so I don't find... And, and I, could be, I could be wrong and I could be crazy. So I'll put an asterisk next to this. But I, I don't find that there's a ton of persuasion that needs to happen. What we are curious about is understanding who we are and how, like, once I understand who I am, I have a better grasp of what it is that I bring mm-hmm. to this larger corporate human experience, whether it's our churches and our fellowships or even the job that I work at or my families. Like we all have a design. I think it's why we're drawn to personality, um, whether it's the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs, like we're all drawn to these, like, who am I? Because I want to know who I am. And if I'm viewing it correctly, it's because I know that I've been put here to partner with God. Mm. Every single one of us carries a little piece of the only together do we, are we the full image of God again? Every one of us is a stone only together. Are we the whole temple? Mm -hmm. So we have to know like what part, we're, we're contributing. And so right now, 
it's actually one of the things I have, I'm trying to brainstorm right now. I don't have a great answer because it's unresolved, but um, I really feel like part of what ministry in and post pandemic is going to look like for so many of us is helping people navigate this very question. Like, know, know how you're, what contribution God's inviting you to make and then, and then go, go figure out where that contribution is most needed and make it. Um, because we used to just try to invite people to just get involved with all the stuff. And we were going to kind of do all that work for them. We would give them the service projects. We'd have all the stuff they could show up to, uh, you know, all the church programming. And now all that stuff's kind of stripped away. And now we're getting an opportunity to see it much more without all the whistle and bells. Like, yeah, without all the bells and whistles. And, and that's, I think it's an opportunity for us to really get some clarity on some of that stuff. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I, I have to imagine that the audience of the day, very much like the audience today, speaking specifically towards the gifts uh, that we have, the gifts of the body and, and applying them towards the glorification of God and, and service to others. I have to imagine that some of the audience was like, hey, you've already got an arsenal of people that are talented and contributing to the quote unquote ministry. Like why, why do you need me also? I, I don't necessarily understand why I fit into the equation. And I think even in today's society, in the American church, there are people who are churchgoers, they're, they're spectators, but they don't want to be participators. And it's not necessarily because they don't have uh, a desire to contribute or that they're against um, being in service to others. I think they just feel like it's taken care of. Uh, so what, based on the, the text and based on the principles that Peter's trying to teach, what would you tell that person? That, yeah, that's another great question. Um, the, I think, and I, I, I don't pretend to know how all the answers on this one, but I have often wondered how much our, um, our own Hellenistic consumer-driven culture has influenced so many of these things. We have been told that value is attached to uh, everything from production to we just have a certain set of ways that our culture and our world uh, uh, evaluates value, yeah. um, assigns value to things. And when when Peter's having this conversation, they're on the other side of that conversation. Um, they're trying to find. They're trying to. They're trying to dig up and unearth value wherever they can find it because mm. they feel completely valueless. Mm. Um, they're not surrounded in their world and their worldview with all these shiny things that they ascribe value to. They're trying to find the light in the darkness. And so I, I feel like sometimes we have numbed in our world and our very consumer driven approach to everything from our faith to everything else. We, we have numbed our ability sometimes to, to, we just ease, we too easily say, I don't have, I don't have the value that's needed here. I, I I'm going to disconnect from this. Mm. And where for Peter, you had to have, you 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 weren't wrestling with any. I'm trying to be really nice with the way I say this, but we just he he didn't have all the fluff. He didn't have all, right. all the he didn't have all the extra distractions. He didn't sure. 
they were trying to survive and and live like literally live not thrive like live an american dream life but they were just trying to be alive sure. um and figure out how to how, and that strips man that strips a lot of that other stuff away right. um right. a lot of that other stuff away so that question caught me off guard. You're good. That was a good one. I like that one. I don't have a great answer on that one. No, it was a fantastic answer. I didn't mean to catch you off guard. So it was great. Uh, but I, it reminds me, what you're saying now reminds me of what you said in your podcast pertaining to First Peter. You talked about how the, the audience of the day was the underbelly of what was taking place, meaning they were the marginalized. They were the persecuted. As where today, the norm is the opposite. The uh, Judeo-Christian uh, society is um, the the dominant one, at, at least here in in the American church and American society. So, as now a receiver of the gospel, a receiver of biblical truth, I have to filter it through the fact that my reality is different from the reality of those who uh, were originally hearing this word, but the principles that are attached to what is being taught still apply. God is still looking for men and women, like you said, to be living stones, to be the hands and feet of the church. And I should not put a limit on what the application of that looks like based on what I am perceiving as success or, or not success. God wants to use me. God wants to use every single person that is listening. And he's capable because of his majesty and because of how large he is to use each and every one of us in unique and distinct competencies. So uh, I do think your, your answer was incredibly helpful. Um, in chapter five, the last chapter, Peter, he speaks a little bit to leaders and to those underneath leadership. He, he talks to the elders and those that are underneath elders. And to the elders, he says, be shepherds of the flock. To those underneath, he says, submit to the elders. And Again, principles that present day maybe we're not as comfortable with don't necessarily sit all that well with us. Uh, a leader in today's society often is not thinking, how do I take care of those underneath me? A leader oftentimes is thinking, how are those underneath me serving me? And what are they giving towards me and helping me advance my vision and advance my agenda? For those underneath, uh, are, they're not necessarily thinking submission. They're not thinking how can I comply with the wishes and desires of those that are in authority over me? They're thinking, how can those over me adjust for me? Um, so in today's context, based on what the, the main guy, the authority figure in the early day church is trying to teach these new believers, what, what do you think are the, the principles and the takeaways that, that we need to understand better today? Oh, goodness. And this is one of those things that I think I work really hard on my trips to try to, try to teach my college student generation. Because this is really, really tricky. And it is tricky. I want to acknowledge how tricky it is because mm -hmm. we've watched leadership. I'm not naming any particular leadership. We've just watched leadership in all kinds of spheres yeah. for years and years abuse that place of leadership and be very, very destructive. And whether it's um, it can be everything from sexual abuse scandals in the church to political leadership to financial situations. Like we've seen enough abuse um, and and corruption that those concerns are are really legitimate. And I'm mm -hmm. gonna I'm gonna try to always recognize that. And yet, and and yet, one of the things that we don't you you nailed it. I mean, we don't 
possess by default. In their, in their culture, they had a default mm-hmm. respect for certain spiritual authority, uh, familial authority, um, just eldership in general. We, we've lost that ability of, we, we, once you really fall into that elder category, we now like kind of push you off to this irrelevant margin. Um, we, we kind of remove you from the, in their culture, they, and I don't know how we necessarily fix that. We definitely need to acknowledge it and mm-hmm. wrestle with what it means to, to move forward from that. But the other thing that we have is um, there was a commitment. It, it's just the nature of our Western versus Eastern communal versus individualistic worldview. So their, their world was a very much a we, a we-driven world. We, we're capable of being we people, but we are dominantly an I-driven world, a me-driven world. They were a very we-driven world, and they were capable of thinking about I, but they were much more aware of their place in the larger. And so they, like one of the things we, we look at while we're in Turkey studying this early church is we look at the concept of binding and loosing and how in all those weird, sticky, gray areas of faith and of communal life, they came together as a community, they talked, they dialogued, and they together came up with, it was never unanimous, ever. That's just not human nature. But they decided together as a group, we're going to respond in this way or in that way. And then the group, there were, there were going to be people in the group that disagreed with that, but they're like, okay, we're together. Mm-hmm. We're on a mission with this. And this us, this we, is led by some spiritual leaders. They, they just... We're so individualized. We just want to know which Facebook meme I'm going to post. Like, like which, which personal position, which camp am I going to plant my flag in? Because we're so identity driven. Mm. I have to, which is so ironic that we're so individualized that the need that we have is we have to find our groups that we can, we, but we could already have our group in the Eucharist community. Mm. We, we could find our identity not just in a theological idea like my identity is in Christ theologically. That's true. We could find our identity in the larger body of Christ as a Eucharistic community committed to one another, being of one mind, Paul would say in Philippians. Um, like we could find, we could find, I think, and I think honestly that's a place to start because I'm not sure I'm going to be able to fix the authority issue without fixing the me, we perspective if i can get us to because we're going to trust we i think a lot earlier in the process before we trust that one person Mm. that one leader or that one title um we're going to have a lot easier time going okay i'll I'll trust us as a collective group and and through that i think we can learn how to how to reclaim some of these other things that we we may have lost in our culture yeah no that's great and i think you're you're spot on when it's um, a transition that's taken place in society on systemically just the way that we think that we think me versus we. And I think there's so many layers of our life and society that are woven into that. And uh, part of it is, is political. Part of it is uh, money and opportunity and, and advancement and, and so on and so forth. But the principle that we're trying to walk away with here is that there are people in every arena of life that are in a position of leadership. And those people that are in a position of leadership have a responsibility 
to care for those that are underneath their care, that they are to steward properly those that have been given to them, appointed to them, whatever language you want to use. But then also those of us that are underneath the authority of others, we're not to see that as an obstacle to our own self-advancement, but really as an opportunity for us to apply some of the purpose that we have inside us. How can I, one of the best ways I can use my gifts, one of the best ways I can be of service to others is to serve those who are responsible for my stewardship, serve those that are responsible for for my advancement, for, for the value attached to my contribution. So again, I think instead of us attaching um, these negative connotations to these ideas of submission or of authority, it's recognizing that all of it is opportunity for us to be uh, in service to one another, but ultimately to, to glorify, like you said, what Paul was alluding to, to glorify God, to be of one mind, of one voice for one purpose. Um, so last question I have for you, Marty, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. And uh, before we go, I'll give you a moment to speak on the Bayman podcast and, and tell any listeners that uh, information that they may or that you may want them to know. But my last question is really just in summary, First Peter, uh, what would you say now we've let, let's put ourselves in, in the future. We've wrapped up this collection. We've been studying this book for eight weeks. What, what's your hope for us as a community that we have walked away with? What is the critical concept? What is the mandate, the call to action for the community of believers av- after having read First Peter? Uh, I, I, would, I would say I would, I would want to walk away with the encouragement to endure seen through like the lens of the impact that we're invited to make, to, to endure by putting God on display, to endure in putting God on display, mm. like to realize that God's in charge of the circumstances and the world and all that stuff. That's what we get to do is we get to be faithful to the call of priesthood, which is something that Peter's going to talk about, our call to be priests and, and a spiritual house and all these metaphors that we've talked about, just one after another, I feel like everything keeps coming back to this missional call to show the world what God is like. And we are going to be able to, in the way that we live, in the way that we endure, mm. we are going to show the world what God is like. And we can do that in a way that's holy, kadosh, set apart, or we can do that in a way that just kind of looks like what everybody would expect from the rest of the world. Uh, uh, a panic, uh, a picking of sides, a binary, this or you know, winners or losers we get to put on something different. And so we're, we're going to have to endure. There's no doubt about that. That's our call for this season right mm-hmm. now. Yeah. But endure in, and the endurance is an opportunity, like the test of the desert. The endurance is a test. It's an opportunity to show God what's in our heart and show the world what God is like. So uh, let's not miss the opportunity to be on mission. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. I don't think there could be a, a better summary that we could come up with. So that's a beautiful uh, way to close this out and a great call for our church, for our community and everyone that is listening today. Uh, before we go, uh, I do want to give you an opportunity to speak on Bema and anything that you would want a listener to know, because I, I know for me personally, it's been a, a huge um, um, resource in my life and in the life of our pastoral team specifically. So uh, what, what would you want our listeners to know about your ministry? Uh, just that it's out there. And if it can be a great tool, uh, you know, it won't be for everybody. It doesn't have to be. We have no 
plans for world domination, but we've got some tools out there, some resources. And if they're helpful to help people, you know, my passion is that people would be equipped and want mm. to get the text in them. Like the Bible is so cool. And when we make it boring, it's such a crime because there's so much stuff out there that is so great. And so if that, if, if the podcast can be one of those tools, um, just go to the baymadiscipleship.com. You'll learn about our ministry. You can see all the episodes. You can find all kinds of stuff. We'll, we do trips to Israel and Turkey, and we'll post that on our news tabs when registrations come open. That will be in 2022. We just got all kinds of things that we hope are just tools and resources to help people know God better, love others better, and, and to really become people of the text. Beautiful. Thank you again so much for your time today. Thank you everyone who is listening today. We hope you have a fantastic rest of your day and rest of your week. God bless you. Take care. Well, thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you like what you're hearing, consider rating it and even sharing it with friends. It helps so much. For more content from Vu and to connect with us, go to vuchurch.com. We love you. The best is yet to come.